you know, I, I'm excited just because I feel like I feel like last week was a bit of a turning point. I don't know if it was that for you guys. It was a, at least a bit of a turning point for me. It felt like we were getting back to the beginning. And I believe that the Lord is really positioning us once again to, to be able to respond to what he's calling us to do. I believe he's taking us back to that, that uh, incubation stage where we're excited, where we're looking forward and not just dreading what he's doing in our midst. And you know, I feel like I really am back in March of 2020, pre-COVID, like those first two weeks where we were meeting together, we were excited, things were about to happen, and we were just sure of it. And then the Lord was like, mm, global pandemic. You know, so I'm just, I'm hoping that we're on the up and up and that there's not a plague of frogs coming. You know, that's, that's my prayer right now is that, you know, there's not another plague, um, you know, another seal isn't going to be broken off, anything like that. I'm hoping that we're, you know, coming out of it. And I, I believe that the Lord is going to reward our faithfulness. You know, I, I really believe that the Lord is a God who keeps his promises, that he is a God who continues to call us, that he has continued to have us in this place. And I'm really excited about it. And so, you know, last week we went back to the beginning. We went back to our mission. We went back to our values to kind of help remember why it is that we're doing this thing, why it is that we're planting city church in this city, when it would be easy to just be like, yeah, this didn't work. We're going to pack up. We're going to go home. And, um, you know, I actually read some of those accounts this week of churches that were like before the pandemic, they were getting ready. And then they were like, yeah, we can't do this anymore because of all the, the stuff that happened during the pandemic. They didn't have the people. They didn't have the resources. And I'm really thankful that we positioned ourselves in a way that allowed us to keep going, allowed us to stay small, allowed us to, to be faithful to what it is the Lord's called us to do. Um, you know, our, our mission here at City Church is to help people discover the fullness of God, become authentic disciples of Jesus Christ, and live on mission. That's the, the mission that God has given us. And ultimately, everything that we do here at City Church is filtered through that mission. It's filtered through that mission of helping people discover the fullness of God, helping them become authentic disciples, and then helping them live on mission. And so it's how we make decisions. It's how we choose to do things. It's why we chose to go outside and be on the square. It's why I'm excited that we're still able to remain on the square, even when there's potential for bad weather, because it allows us to truly do the things that the Lord has called us to do. And I want to say this, I'm really thankful I'm really thankful that we're on this journey together. I'm really thankful for, for each and every one of you that are here because we get to do this. Like we, we, we get to do this. We get to take the good news of the gospel to the city of Denton, the city that, that we love, the city that we live in, the city that is close to so many of our hearts. I, I'm thankful that we get to do this. So what I want to do this morning is ultimately I want to go through a passage of scripture that I believe really shows what it looks like for our mission to be in practice. I believe that this is a passage of scripture that we can really dive into. That's a passage of scripture that's going to help us see what it looks like to fulfill this mission that God has called us to do. And so we're going to be in Acts 17 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 34. All right, Acts 17, 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. 
A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets, poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Demarius, and, Neith, and, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Whoa, that was like, that was like powerful, man. We're, we're getting this thing. <laughs> so this section of scripture is one that I think can really help us understand what it looks like to fulfill our mission. I, I believe that this is one that's really wonderful. I think it's positioned in a city that's like our city. I think it is very similar to what it is that we're doing. I like Jesse's hand motions. He's just like, I just need you to come up here, Jesse. Like, you're just going to have to be one of these numbers. <laughs> I was hoping for interpretive dance, but, you know, you know we'll, we'll, we'll go with whatever you got. Um, you know, I think if we'll open our hearts and minds, if we'll open our hearts and minds to, to what the scripture is saying, to what the Lord is doing, I think this will truly help us to see the journey the Lord has us on. I think this is one that's going to, to really help us. And what I want to do this morning is I want to break down this passage. I want to break it down into four sections so that we can better understand and see what is happening here. And so the first section that I want to kind of break down is the background here. So we kind of jumped right into this, but ultimately let me give you a little bit of background so that we can better understand all that's at play here. So this is during Paul's second missionary journey. He's left Antioch. He's, he's ready. He's going out. He's basically doing this giant circle where he's going around and he's going to arrive back to Antioch. 
And so he's been doing this. He's been going out to, to various cities, preaching the good news of the gospel, going into synagogues, going among the people, and preaching the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. But Paul here, the context that we're, we're immediately going into, is he's, he's fresh off two not-so-great ministry experiences prior to him arriving in Athens. See, he goes to uh, Thessalonica, and he's run out of town. He goes to Berea after that, where we get the Bereans who are like excited. They're diving into the Old Testament. They're going through the Hebrew scriptures and they're like, yes, this Jesus is the one that we saw who was prophesied about. And then those people from Thessalonica followed him to Berea and made him leave again. And the church was like, no, you've got to get out of here. We need you to leave. We'll, we'll keep Timothy. We'll keep Silas. But you got to go, Paul, because they're going to kill you. And so that's Paul's context going into this as he's off of, you know, two not so great ministry assignments, you know, having, you know, some assassins follow you to, you know, the city after they get so upset that you've preached the gospel in their city, you know, not the best ministry context to go into, but this is what Paul is doing. And so he's in Athens and really Athens is a layover for him. It's not part of his planned itinerary. He wasn't planning to go to Athens. It was like, you know, he's going to Florida and he's flying Delta and he's got to stop in Atlanta because, you know, you can't go straight to Florida on Delta, but you got to stay there in Atlanta for just a second. That's Paul in Athens. It's a time where he would be justified in just resting in waiting in just being there, you know, finding the best Athenian double cheeseburger he could find, you know, finding the local Airbnb and just kicking his feet up for a little bit and waiting on Timothy and Silas to join him so that he could go on to Corinth. But that's not what Paul does here. Paul, because he is who he is and because he's been so affected by what has happened to him, he's been so affected by this gospel of Jesus, he can't help himself. He's here just as a little layover, just here as a time of rest, just a little bit of safety, a little bit of security, and Paul's a troublemaker. He can't help himself. He goes into the marketplace, preaches this, gets dragged in front of the council who basically deliberates philosophical matters. It's who Paul is. He can't help himself. He's been so affected by the gospel that he goes out. And so let's, let's look at the second point, which I like to call the provocation. You know, Paul, for just a minute, he's probably there for like three seconds, you know, resting for just a second. He like kicked his feet up in the marketplace. He's enjoying that Athenian double cheeseburger. And then he's like, man, all these people have gone crazy. They have lost their minds. And I think this is where we truly begin to see how just how much Paul's been affected by the gospel. Just how much he's been changed by the gospel. Because I think we'd all agree that he would be justified in just laying low for a second just taking a little bit of a break, but because he's been changed, because the gospel has gotten such a hold of him that it's changed him so much because he has seen this Jesus, because he's experienced the promise of new life, he's changed. He can't just sit and rest and enjoy and relax. He's, he's on mission. Even if this wasn't planned as part of his mission, he's there, and so therefore he is on mission because he's a missionary. So verse 16 ultimately tells us that, that Paul became greatly distressed. He became greatly distressed while waiting in Athens because the city was full of idols. They were worshiping gods that were not the Lord. They were not Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. 
There were all these other gods that they were ascribing the glory that was due to the Lord. And so Paul sees this and he becomes affected. He becomes distressed. And the NASB, which translates a bit more literally, says this. It says, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed that the city was full of idols. See, this wasn't just a, a surface level frustration. It wasn't just, you know, something that kind of affected him a little bit. It was in his innermost being that was affected by this, that was provoked to respond. He was distressed as at what he saw. And the word here that's actually translated as provoked or greatly distressed is actually most often translated as angered. It's most often translated as angered and only exists a couple of times in the New Testament. But if we look at the Greek text of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, it's often put in context of the Lord being angered. It's most often the Lord being angered at what he sees his people doing. It's the Lord being angered at them turning away from him at them going their own ways, of them pursuing their own thoughts. And so when Paul is here saying that he's greatly distressed, it's him feeling what the Lord feels. It's him observing what the Lord observes. It's him having the Father's heart. The Father's heart isn't just uh, this, you know, greatness where we want to see them come to know Jesus. It's also him reflecting and responding to what he sees in the world around him. So Paul has put on the Lord's heart and is seeing things the way that the Lord sees them. But he's not just provoked. He's not just there talking about it. He's not just like, you know, I'm distressed and I'm going to write a strongly worded Facebook post about it. He's provoked to action. He's provoked to do something. See, the reality is is that missional living begins in a place of being distressed. It begins in a place of being distressed. And until we are affected by those around us, we won't live missionally. If we don't allow everything around us to affect us, if we don't put on the Father's heart, if we don't see things through the Father's eyes, then we won't be affected enough to go out and do what the Lord has called us to do. See, the status quo is is always something that's easy to fall into because it's the status quo. It's everything that's there. But in order to see change, in order to do what we've been called to do, we have to be affected. We have to do things a little bit differently. See, I think if if we're, we're honest, the amount of sin around us should be a sobering reality. The amount of idolatry around us should be a sobering reality. In order to do what, we've called, what we're called to do, we must seek the Lord's heart for our city. We must seek what it is that He sees in our city. What is His heart here? What is He wanting to do? What is He observing? See, and this requires us to, to not just pray, but also to open our eyes, to be observant. Yes, let's pray and ask for God's heart, but also we already know God's heart because we've been given His word. He's shown us what his heart is. He's, he's shown us what pains him. He's shown us what is difficult for him to see in the world. Let's be open to what the Spirit would have us do. Let's be open to how the Spirit would have us respond to this. 
So let's look at number three, which is the method. So Paul is provoked. He's, we know his background. Now what does he do? What is his method at this? Does he, you know, get on his typewriter and do a tweet? No, that was a very bad, the voice reference. So I'm very sorry for that. You know, after revealing that Paul was distressed, Luke records, he reasoned. And so it literally is this, he was greatly distressed, so he reasoned. That was his initial reaction. It wasn't to just linger in being upset. It wasn't to fume. It wasn't to gather the church around him or to to write a letter being like, guys, we need to pray for this. It was he went to action. Yes, let's pray. Yes, let's pray for hearts and minds to be changed in our city. But let's not just focus on prayer. We can, we can understand that Paul was likely praying in the background of this as well, even though Luke doesn't record it. But what he does record is that he went and he reasoned. And what I love about this is I think it really shows us our role here. It shows us what it is that God has called us to do. See, being provoked or affected or distressed about our city or the state of the world, it, it's not enough. Being angered is not enough. It it always must propel us towards action. It must propel us towards action. See, like Paul, we must see what's going on, allow it to affect us, and then go and try and change it. Not just lingering, not just fuming, not just waiting, not just talking, but going and doing what the Lord's heart is for this city. And I think another important piece of this is Paul doesn't just do this once. He isn't just affected by it, goes out and does this, you know, preaching of the gospel. He, he stands up real excited one time, tells them the gospel, and then pieces out. That's not what Paul does here. In verse 17, it tells us that he did this day by day. He did it day by day, going and reasoning in the synagogue, going and reasoning in the marketplace to all that would listen to him. So he observes, he sees, he goes, and then he keeps going and going and going. See, missional living is a marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And I think too often we allow ourselves to become distressed. We, we respond even. We're, we're, we're ready to do it. We go out and do this thing, and then we go back to normal too quickly. We don't have the endurance to keep going, to keep doing this, to keep following this. See, faithful missional living requires us to discipline ourselves. It requires us to be disciplined in pursuing this mission that God has us on. It requires us to keep in mind the Lord's desires at all time and not our own desires. Because our own desires are always going to move us back towards the status quo. They're always going to move us back to, to where we were, to how things were before. But the Lord's heart is always for the gospel to go forth. It's always for it to go forth, for disciples to be made. So I want to look a little deeper at how Paul ultimately reasons with those around him. How is he actually doing this among the people? So Paul's out there. He's reasoning day by day. He's telling them the good news of Jesus. We know he's preaching about the resurrection. We know that he's preaching this Jesus who has come to teach a new way of doing life that's a bit upside down. 
He's doing this day by day, and then, you know, he's confronted because it's Paul, and he can't help himself but be confronted by people. And this time, it's a group of philosophers. And we're not going to go into the different types of philosophers that are there, but ultimately, it's a group of philosophers that are trying to understand this new teaching that he brings. They're like, hey, this is something we haven't quite heard before. You know, we want to hear more of this. And, And they're basically like, you know, what is this dude talking about? Like, what is going on? This dude is telling us something that we have never heard before. And if you know anything about ancient Greece, you know that they love their gods. And they got a few of them. And they got all sorts of dramatic stories about their gods. And their gods always seem to be against them. Like, they're always against ancient Greece. Like, they're like, man... These gods just aren't on our side. Like, they're always wanting us to serve them. They're always against us. But what Paul is preaching is completely different. See, Paul's preaching that God is for them. That this God came and he, he came and was among them. That he sent his son. He, he died. He was resurrected. And he was coming again to give life to all those who would trust in him. Paul's preaching a message that is different than the message they're expecting to hear or the message that they've heard before. And so the philosophers are like, I don't know what's going on. They take Paul to a meeting of the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And ultimately, there's a court that judges things like philosophy. And for us, we're like, okay, you know, they're judging things like philosophy. That's probably like just this weird thing off to the side. You know, no one's really paying attention to these people. They're probably just the crazy people that enjoy this sort of thing. Well, this court not only judged philosophy, they also judged matters that were of extreme importance, like cases of murder. And so then Paul going before this council is a big deal. They're really trying to get to the bottom of what it is that Paul is preaching. And so Paul, in just a matter of resting for a little bit, has gotten in front of the most important people in Athens to preach the good news of the gospel because he's provoked people with the good news of the gospel. You know, just a life, light layover in Athens, get dragged before the most important court possible for matters of philosophy and murder. Just in case the people catch up to him, you know, before he gets to fully preach the gospel. Now, I ultimately want us to to pay attention to how Paul interacts with them, though. Because I think it really clues us in to how we can interact with people around us. Because Paul doesn't just preach the gospel. You know, so many times people are just like, just preach the gospel, brother, and it'll be fine. Well, contextualization matters. Context matters. Helping people to better understand the gospel based on the culture around them is important. And that's what Paul ultimately does this. What he does is when he's in front of this people, he begins to bring their cultural artifacts and uses them like an altar to an unknown God. Or even their poets and of prose, he brings that into his conversation to use to begin to have these conversations about this God who is coming to serve them, who is coming to bring them new life. And this is huge. It's a new way of doing things. It's not making them fit into a different culture. It's allowing their culture to be used to present the gospel to them. Paul never preached the gospel without context. He contextualized the gospel so that those who listened to him could better understand it. 
And he's always doing this. And I think it's something that we need to do as well. I think too often we make assumptions that the people around us want nothing to do with religion, that they want nothing to do with the things of God. But I think if we're honest, if we'll really have eyes to see, if we'll observe the people around us, is that our culture is deeply religious. Our culture is deeply religious. Our culture has a creed. Our culture has a form of evangelism. Our culture has a form of discipleship. Is it the Christian way of doing all those things? No, but they are deeply religious about these things. They care about things like justice. They care about things like providing for the poor. They care about things like loving one another. Well, at least in some way they care about these things. And these are things that God cares about too. There are things that the Lord cares about too, yet they don't know this God. Our culture doesn't know this God, yet they're affected by things that affect the Lord. They're affected by things that affect God's heart as well. See, the only God that they know is the God that's against them, just like the Greeks. They know this God who is against them, that wants to just take them down, that wants to condemn them to hell but they don't know the God that came to serve them, that came to restore them, that came to love them, that came to bring them new life. See, our job is to observe what it is our culture cares about and not just condemn it and not just change the subject quickly to matters of the gospel, but to use those things to present the gospel. I think too often we're like, I have no clue how to talk to these people. Use what it is they care about. Talk to them about the things they care about. That's what Paul does here. He sees the things that they hold dear. He uses their poets. He uses uh, quotes of prose to talk to them about the gospel. He doesn't just preach the gospel. He preaches the gospel through the cultural context. See, our culture has picked up on bits of truth. They've picked up on some of these things, but ultimately they need our help in seeing them in their fullness through Christ. They need help seeing that the God of the Bible does care about these things, even though the church hasn't cared about them as much as they should have. They need our help seeing this God. See, what Paul does by using these cultural artifacts is he draws his listeners in to common ground. It's like, this is our common ground. This is where we can agree. This is where we can start to have a conversation. But it's also really important for us to note that Paul doesn't stop at common ground. He doesn't just stop at, hey, you know, we can agree here, right? And then these other things we can just disagree on. Like, those don't matter. That's not what Paul does. He uses the common ground, and then he goes on to preach the gospel. He goes on to show them the good news of Jesus, because ultimately Paul understands that if he stops at common understanding, if he stops at common ground, then he's failed to do what it is that he's called to do. He's failed to do what it is he's called to do. See, our job is not simply to love our neighbor by showing them what we have in common. It's not to just befriend our neighbor and to love one another by closeness and proximity and good relationships and good tidings. No, our job is to love our neighbors by presenting the gospel to them. That's our ultimate call is to present them with the gospel, to show them our love by showing them the Lord. 
And I think it's important for us to remember if everyone loves our message, we're not preaching the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to have people like chasing us around city to city. Maybe. Like you may experience that. I, you know, I have. I've gotten hit upside the head with an umbrella, but you know, haven't experienced people chasing me city to city trying to shut me down. If everyone loves our message, we're not preaching the gospel. The gospel is divisive. The gospel does elicit a response. It's not just agree to disagree. It does come with a weighty reality to it. See, what Paul does is he preaches the fullness of God and what it looks like to become authentic disciples of Christ. Does that sound familiar, what Paul is doing here? Maybe it's in our mission as well. Paul's mission is also our mission. Paul preaches the need for repentance. He preaches that all will be judged by the man who defeated death through resurrection, Jesus the Lord. Uses common ground, but then goes on to a weighty Christology of who this Jesus is, that all were created through him and all will be judged by him. He goes on to present the unadulterated gospel. See, missional living must always have presenting the unadulterated gospel as a goal. It must be what we move towards. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and get myself in a bit of trouble. I'm going to say something a bit controversial, but, you know, we're used to that by now, right? I think we've become so afraid of making people our projects that we failed to respond to what God has called us to do. We've become so afraid of making people our projects that we failed to respond to what God has called us to do. This isn't gospel thinking. It's humanistic reasoning. And yes, it sounds good in our heads because, you know, as a human, we don't want to make people our projects. But in reality, we've been called to the Great Commission. We've been called to go into all nations, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that the Lord has commanded. Ultimately, what the Lord has called us to do is project-based learning. He's called us to follow him by doing these things. He's not just called us to, you know, present the gospel when it makes the most sense. He's called us to present the gospel. He's called us to help people see this God, to present the gospel to them, and to help disciple them into what it looks like to actually follow him. See, the reality is that people are separated from God, and it's our calling, what we're called to do, is to help them come to life by showing them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and helping them disciple and discipling them into obedience. The Great Commission calls us to do this, and, and, and I, I know this, this sounds a bit mixed up, but ultimately it's something that I really want us to consider. We can talk about it. You can tell me I'm wrong. We can have the conversations about it, but I don't know. It was something that hit me this morning that wasn't in my original notes, but I had to add in this morning because 
I think it's something that needs to break in our heads. I think it's a mindset shift that we need to have. Again, happy to have the conversation about it because I know it's making a shift a little bit and I see all the, the faces that I'm getting thinking through what I've said. To ultimately serving our city, creating friendships, doing good works, they're all part of missional living. All these things are part of missional living, of doing these things, making friends, serving our city, doing good works, cleaning up the city. You know, all those things are, are, are good and fine, but without the gospel, they're just good works. They're just good works, and we can pat ourselves on the back for doing them. Ultimately, we must press on towards gospel proclamation and disciple making. It's what we're called to do. So finally, let's look at the response here. This is number four. Let's look at the response of the people who have received this message, who have heard this message. And what do we expect? Luke records that there was a mixed response to Paul's preaching. You know, some mocked him because of his belief in the resurrection. They're like, man, this dude is crazy, talking about dudes that were dead and are alive again, and like, are just like going at him for it, likely. Others were intrigued. They wanted to hear more. They're like, hey, let, let, me, let me hear you again. You're talking about dead guys coming back to life, and, you know, it's going to take me a minute to get there. But, like, let, let, let's hear this again. And others believed in the gospel and began to follow Paul as he followed Christ. Some trusted in this message of new life. See, I think Paul knew going into this that he wasn't going to convince everyone. He knew going into this that he wasn't just going to like stand up, preach the gospel, and everyone was going to follow after him and be like, yeah, you're right. This unknown God is Yahweh, and we need to follow him. He is the one that created us. He is the one that in him we live and love and have our being. But Paul knows that's not going to happen. Paul knows that there are going to be some that respond. And I think our desire is that all will respond to the gospel with grateful hearts. That's always what we desire, but the reality is that many won't. This is something that we need to accept. It's something we need to understand. It's something we need to get in our minds, realizing that we are going to go and preach the good news. We are going to take this message of the gospel to people, and some are going to respond, and they're going to be excited about it, and they're going to follow Jesus. Some are going to be like, you know, I don't know about this. Let's talk about it more. And others are going to be like, bro, you can just get out. Like, just, just leave. Like, go away. Like, there's always going to be this mixed response, but this shouldn't deter us. It shouldn't deter us. Yes, many won't respond the way we want them to, but some will. Some will respond to the Gospels, and those that do are worth the effort of going after. It's worth the chastisement of those that call us out of our minds and crazy. It's worth the countless hard conversations. It's worth all the reasoning. See, we can't allow our fear to stop us from living missionally. Can't allow our fear of the unknown or, or the fear of people rejecting us to stop us from doing what it is that God has called us to do. I think it's also important that we know what the goalposts are here. See, Paul's work didn't stop when he, when he got people to believe in the message of Jesus. He doesn't just be like, okay, y'all believe, I'm going to head out now. I'm going to go on to, to Corinth and just leave you guys there. 
You know, I think what is great is that Luke actually says that they became followers of Paul. And he's not saying that because they believe in Paul. He's saying that because they literally started following Paul. Like, here's Paul and here's me. Like, I'm just following after the dude because I want to know what he knows. I want to learn what it is that he has to teach me. I want to know this Jesus that he talks about. Paul doesn't stop when he gets people to believe he walks with these people. One of the the people that responds to Paul's gospel here is Dionysius. And while Luke doesn't record it here, we can, uh, excuse me, we're about to get it slightly nerdy. We're going to go into some classical documents, but okay. Eusebius, first church historian in around the 300s, and ultimately he writes this work that's the history of the church. And what is so wonderful about this is we get this picture of the first couple hundred years of Christianity. And Dionysius is one of those figures that we end up seeing in Eusebius's work. And what does Dionysius end up becoming? The first bishop of Athens. So Paul here is on a layover in Athens, just waiting, you know, trying to escape these people that are coming after him, attacking him. And because he responds to the gospel, because he responds to what the Lord's doing in his heart, he helps plan a new church in Athens. He gets to disciple someone. He gets to have someone follow along beside him as he follows Jesus and then goes on to help establish the church in Athens. That's a pretty cool thing to have happen on just a slight layover. And it shows what it looks like if we'll respond to this. Their goal isn't just to get people to believe, it's to help them become authentic disciples of Jesus so that they can go on to live missionally. See, Dionysius didn't just become a bishop, he also became a martyr for Jesus. He lived his life so well for Jesus that he wouldn't even renounce his faith at death. That's what it looks like for us to preach the gospel and disciple people so that they will be firm in their faith. So we must be willing to walk alongside them, to invite people into our lives. Is it going to be messy? Yeah. Is it going to be inconvenient? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Do you think if we're willing to do this, that's when we know that we've positioned ourselves to see the Lord do great things in our midst? Are we willing to take this gospel? Are we willing to allow our lives to be interrupted when we don't feel it, when we need a little bit of a break, when all these people are chasing after us and we're just like here for a layover for just a moment? Like, are we willing to still respond to the gospel? Are we willing to live out missional lives? And I hope the answer is yes. I hope the answer is yes. And so I want to wrap this up and I ultimately want to challenge us for a few things and give us a few questions to consider. And these are in the the Bible app, in the the events and the notes there. So these questions are there so you don't feel like you have to write them down. But if you do need to write them down so you remember them, also do that. Ultimately, I want to challenge you this week to read through this scripture, to, to dwell on it just a little bit and think about how it applies to Denton. How do we apply this to Denton? And here are a few questions that I want us to discuss this week in neighborhood groups. 
The first question is this. What are the things that anger the Lord in our city? What are the things that cause the Lord distress in our city like they caused Paul distress? The second question is, what are the cultural artifacts that we can use to share the gospel? Paul used the temple to an unknown God. He used Greek prose and poetry to teach the gospel. What are those cultural artifacts around us that we can use? Then finally, we know that Paul went into places like the synagogue and the local market to proclaim the gospel and to reason with people. What are the places that we can go to in Denton? Where are the places here that we can go and reason and have these conversations? So what I want you to do is I want to encourage you to set a reminder on your phone to go through these questions before Wednesday. I really want us to put a little bit of thought into them so we can have a good conversation on Wednesday that we're not just like, you know, me in high school, it was literally two minutes before the bell rang. I was filling out my homework right then to like do something. And that's not what I want us to do with this. I want us to spend some time considering these, praying through them, asking the Lord to reveal these things to us, and also being willing to open our eyes around us. As I mentioned, I'm incredibly excited for where the Lord has us, for for what God is doing in our midst, for what God is is doing in us. And And I truly believe that we're on the cusp of of truly understanding what our mission looks like and how to live it out. I think we're on the cusp of really getting it. And I think if we'll allow the Spirit to move in us, if we'll allow the Spirit to work in our hearts, if we'll be willing to respond to Him, then I think we'll get it. I think we'll get it. Do you think we can be like Paul in this passage? But if we're going to be like Paul in this passage, then we must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross daily and we must follow Jesus. Missional living isn't easy. It isn't easy, it is difficult, but it is the way to hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. Let's pray.